Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Benjamin Moore, who is Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics. His research is concerned with understanding why some countries and people are so much poorer at, uh, than others and how micro-heterogeneity impacts the macroeconomy and macroeconomic policy. Welcome, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Really great to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, you have a research agenda at the LSC, and I want to go through some of the areas of your interest. Um, you say uh, in the piece that you send me, one of the key developments in macroeconomics research over the last three decades has been the incorporation of explicit heterogeneity into the models of the macroeconomy. As a result of taking micro data seriously, these theories uh, study macroeconomic questions in terms of distributions of microeconomic variables like income or wealth, rather than just aggregates. Yeah, this is, uh, this is quite interesting, Ben. So when we think about macroeconomics, generally we think about systems and system-wide effects, and uh, models tend to um, look at things at that level. Uh, and you're taking it in a slightly different direction. You're saying the participants in large systems are diverse and that should have an impact on outcomes? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the the uh, philosophy, I guess, is sort of to build everything uh, up from the ground, right? To take really seriously what we know from uh, people's behavior that we see in microdata and what the, our friends, the, the microeconomists, have been studying for, for many years, you know, their uh, people's consumption behavior, their, their savings behavior, um, how, how they, you know, behave in labor markets and so on, and uh, try to put that in, uh, in, the, in the macro models. And then when you do that and you look at the micro data, one of the first things that will jump out at you is just how much heterogeneity there is uh, across people in virtually every, uh, uh, you know, data uh, variable you'll look at, uh, in particular in things like income and wealth. I mean, there are some uh, people who are phenomenally wealthy, right? And then there's other people 
who either have no uh, uh, assets whatsoever or they even have a massive amount of debt. Right. And uh, so uh, essentially, or for income as well, some people have a very high annual income flow and some other people have uh, live off uh, government benefits, say. And so we want to sort of take that seriously in the macro models uh, uh, and sort of use that as a as the main building block for thinking about macroeconomic policy and you know macroeconomic shocks and how the economy behaves so in other words averages don't work <laughs> from hey, that that that's exactly right that that is exactly uh, the right way to think about it um you can't just look at the aggregates uh you you the aggregates mask a lot of relevant heterogeneity and then the key idea is that there's a lot of sort of non-linearity at the micro level um, in say people's consumption and savings uh, decisions. So for example, if you give a, a, a rich person an extra dollar, he'll do something very different with that or eat a lot less of that than if you give a poor person an extra dollar. Um, and because of that nonlinearity, uh, you cannot aggregate up. Um, and so as you exactly as you say, the averages don't uh, tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, and so you know, it seems uh, intuitive, Ben. Um, and you know, if you look at sort of the cross-sectional distribution of wealth or income in almost any economy today, uh, you see very, very high variability, as as you as you mentioned. Uh, and so, studying these large systems um, requires one to incorporate. Uh, I would imagine that variability. You, you talk about Hank models here. Um, right, heterogeneous agent new Keynesian models. Could you describe what they are? Sure. Um, so yeah, that's sort of a, a special case, if you want, or a particular application of this sort of broader philosophy of heterogeneous agent modeling, or I guess I sometimes like to call it sort of distributional macroeconomics, where you really take the distribution and heterogeneity seriously. And there, the main idea is to think about uh, building such models to think about um, macroeconomic policy, uh, in particular monetary and fiscal policy. And so as a, as a background or a useful background to understand sort of what the main contribution is of these Hank models, is it's sort of useful to take a step back and think about what the more traditional models are that, say, central banks had been using for many years to think about macroeconomic policies. And these are uh, what's called a representative agent uh, new Keynesian models, as opposed to the models we work with, right, which which are these heterogeneous agent New Keynesian models. So in these representative agent New Keynesian models, right, the idea is that there's sort of a, a stand-in household, and you can sort of think about an economy as if there's just sort of a one stand-in household. And the, the main thing is that the way these models work, say, for monetary policy, um, is uh, they say that the way monetary policy works, it's all about what's called intertemporal substitution. So uh, intertemporal substitution is the idea that if the central bank cuts interest rates, so say the, the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank cuts the uh, federal funds rate, um, then people think, oh, now is a bad time to save. It's a good time to borrow. And then they do that and they increase their consumption. And what we're essentially saying uh, is that if you look at the microdata, it doesn't look like this. Instead, the sort of theory of intertemporal substitution only applies to sort of a small fraction of the population. And instead, yeah. uh, what people do is they don't respond, or a lot of people don't respond to interest rate changes a lot. And what they respond to instead is uh, changes to their income, so their labor income in particular. And so then we kind of built this kind of a heterogeneous agent model uh, and sort of glue it together 
uh, with one of these uh, more traditional New Keynesian models to think about uh, uh, monetary policy. And then you get this sort of a pretty different perspective of the transmission mechanism of, say, monetary policy or also the power of fiscal policy, which is all about, um, you know, people responding to changes in their labor incomes rather than uh, uh, income uh, changes in their in their in their interest rates they face so this yeah, yeah. Do, you, do I understand this uh, Ben so in the representative model um, we are assuming financial flexibility we are assuming sort of decision flexibility for all agents all representative agents so to speak exactly and and, and oftentimes um, agents or large proportion of the agents, don't really have decision flexibility to to really uh, effect in the temporal substitution that's assumed, and so so we don't get the outcomes we're looking for, right? Exactly. So the yeah the key assumption um, that you're kind of making when you're imposing this representative agent is essentially that uh, all people in the in the economy um, are sort of not financially constrained, meaning they. Uh, if they want to borrow an extra dollar, they can do so. But um, what we see in the data is that there's a lot of people who look like what the people in literature call uh, hand-to-mouth. So they look like they're up against some sort of a, a constraint, as in they have zero assets or they're up against a credit card limit. And if they want to borrow more, they can't. Um, yeah. And then these hand-to-mouth people, essentially, um, because they're exactly constrained, uh, and they can sort of intertemporally substitute, they're not going to respond to these interest rate changes. But on the other hand, they're going to respond very strongly to income changes. If you give someone who's hand-to-mouth an extra dollar, he's going to eat it. Uh, that's exactly the, the difference to the representative Asian models. So so in the in the heterogeneous models, um, are you sort of clustering the population? Obviously, we can model every individual uh, in the system. So, so you come up with a set of um, sort of uh, clusters in the economy and then model those behaviors? How, how do you do that? No, you actually do it uh, uh, differently. You do actually kind of try to model every individual in the economy. Oh. So you, you, the whole philosophy is rather than having sort of distinct uh, groups of people, um, uh, you know, th there's an entire cross-sectional distribution of people that looks just like what you'd see in the data. Um, yeah. and, and then also people you know, may have this hand-to-mouth status um, where they're constrained uh, for some years or for, for a given amount of time, but then uh, they may also, you know, leave that hand-to-mouth state again. So, you know, some, some person who is unemployed uh, may display this type of hand-to-mouth behavior, but then when they find a job again and they have a higher labor income, then they can accumulate some liquid savings again, and then they're maybe actually going to over time be, uh, again, one of these people who is more like a, an intertemporal substituter, so behaves more like yeah. one of these representative agents. So the whole thing is that the, everything's sort of endogenous and how, how people respond depends on their position in the wealth distribution, and that's sort of an endogenous object that you need to carry around. Yeah, so, so the inputs are then the distribution of income and wealth. And when you sample from that, um, depending on where 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 you're sampling from, you have some expectations as to what behavior you can see. Right? Exactly. So the the key sort of um, what's called the state variable of the system is just the 
cross-sectional joint distribution of income and wealth. And then the thing that drives that typically in these models is that some people um, are smart and some people are less smart and some people uh, you know, get lucky in the sense that they get a promotion uh, and, and you know, have high labor income and some other people, um, they get unlucky in the sense that they uh, lose their jobs. Um, and there's a sort of a lot of churn at the micro level you know, inside that model in, within the distribution. Um, uh, but, but, and you kind of have to think about people sort of moving around and having these sort of idiosyncratic experiences depending on whether they get lucky or not. So this clearly has a lot of applications uh, in COVID-19 uh, policies. Uh, we will come back to that so that we can talk about it in more detail. I want to look at some of your other um, interests um, at LSC. One of them is theories of rising income and wealth inequality. Right. Uh, so what are the what are the insights, uh, you know, from from that area? Right. So w one uh, particular paper that we've been working on is uh, this is joined with uh, uh, Lucas, Rachel, and Pasquale Restrepo. Is we've essentially been trying to understand the impact of automation on income and wealth inequality. So automation uh, being defined as technical change that uh, replaces tasks that were previously performed by labor um, with capital. So, uh, you know, a, a robot or maybe an AI algorithm also now does something that uh, uh, people used to do. Um, and the key uh, idea is there's obviously a big literature in economics on, you know, the effects of automation on the labor market in particular. And the, 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 the key result that people in that literature typically stress is that um, automation affects wage inequality in the sense that some people who are skilled uh, benefit from automation and other people who are unskilled uh, lose from automation. What we're saying is that um, what this whole literature is forgetting and what we should also be focusing on is uh, what automation or technical change more generally uh, does for owners of capital. And so the key idea in, in our work is that essentially um, there's some people who essentially are capital owners. And then when there's more automation, it's not just the high skilled people, the high skilled workers who benefit, but also the owners of capital. So just to give an example, essentially, if there's sort of, if robots become more productive, um, then what the sort of existing literature had been stressing is mostly that, uh, you know, some people uh, benefit, some workers benefit from there being more robots and some people lose from there being more robots. What we're saying is one of the other primary thing that happens is that the people who own the robots uh, are going to massively benefit. And then essentially what's going to happen is that at the top of the income and wealth distributions, there are a lot of these people who own private businesses yeah. um, uh, and that benefit from automation that then, um, you know, are, are, are going to, then inequality is going to increase. Like an example, let, let me give one concrete example, yeah. um, which would be, um, say, the, uh, the owner um, of uh, Zara, the, uh, uh, you know, clothing uh, manufacturer, now I forget his name, and a Spanish gentleman, um, he, uh, he got massively wealthy, right? Um, and I guess we would be saying that this is partly due to the fact that um, he's been replacing uh, uh, you know, workers in the in the in the plant sewing his clothes uh, with with uh, uh, machines uh, who now sew the clothes, and he's getting the returns from these machines getting better over time. 
rather than these uh, accruing to workers. Right, right. Yeah, so so let, let me know if I understand this correctly, Ben. So it makes a lot of, lot of sense to me. Uh, so when we think about robots, artificial intelligence in general, uh, replacing labor uh, with machines, uh, generally speaking, the returns to capital is increasing and the returns to labor is decreasing, right? That is the environment that we are going into. Right, that is the rough idea. Yes, that's correct. And so, so when we look out and, and we can already see signs of this, um, I think uh, just about five or six companies represent one third of the market capitalization of S&P 500 today. Right. And, and so you would imagine this trend to continue that um, scale becomes um, you know, sort of the governing criteria for success uh, because with scale and financial flexibility, you can invest more into capital and capital returns higher and higher. It's sort of a runaway mechanism <laughs> that uh, sweeps all the wealth out of the economy and dumps it in the pockets of maybe a few people. Right. In our theory, it's not a runaway mechanism, so it does stop at some point. Um, I mean, yeah. the only way it would be a runaway mechanism is if the um, automation uh, keeps continuing forever. So the, the, what it, automation does essentially in, in our uh, theory, it, it more or less just directly reduces the share of um, total income that accrues uh, to labor and instead makes this uh, you know, income share accrue to capital. And so yeah. it would be a, the only scenario in which it would be a runaway process is if automation essentially drives the labor share to zero and the capital share to one. But we don't, we don't yeah. think that would happen. So we do think it would probably stop at some point. For, for sure, we're very far away from a, a labor share of uh, you know, zero percent uh, and a capital share of 100 percent. So we do think it would probably stop at some point. Uh, uh, and, and then you also won't have this process completely running away. Yeah, um, I mean, looking at what we are seeing today, there is, I, I believe at least, this is an opinion, it's a speculation, there is a distinct possibility that we can drive labor share to zero. Uh, if that's the case, then it has policy implications, right? Now, uh, people are already talking about minimum guaranteed income. Right. Uh, we already know many, many jobs that are repeating uh, jobs. Uh, humans are not that good at them, uh, and they do them uh, because they exist. Um, if they don't exist, uh, then they will be replaced, you know, uh, they, they don't exist, meaning they don't exist for humans replaced by machines. Then at the highest level, you need some other, I'm uh, making a statement, but you can uh -huh. correct me, some other way to sort of moderate the system, right? Otherwise, otherwise it will break ultimately. Right. I mean, there, there, there's sort of a broader, uh, 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 okay, so let me take one step. I, I mean, I think in general, in economics, it's kind of hard to predict the future. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm always a little bit um, uncomfortable speculating about these kind of uh, very long run developments. Um, and yeah. uh, I, I mean, I, my my reading of the literature is that there are a number of sort of um, offsetting mechanisms. Um, in particular, I guess one main reason to automate for firms is that currently um, labor costs um, 
are kind of high. But you know, if the more you automate, um, the more people would uh, want to work in the jobs that are in the tasks that have not been automated yet. So then at some point, the labor cost, uh, you would think would fall and there would be sort of a self-correcting mechanism where at some point it wouldn't pay off to automate anymore um, because you can employ uh, workers so cheaply. But um, yes, there is a question, you know, at what point uh, this, this, and there's other offsetting mechanisms like this as well. Um, there is a question at what, uh, you know, point this process would self-correct. And then I guess that's why uh, one may want to talk about such things as a universal basic income and so on. Uh, but most economists are uh, kind of skeptical of that, I think, is my, is my understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, without knowing a lot about it, purely from a technical perspective, um, I, I think we are far from, you know, some sort of self-correcting mechanism to kick in because, you know, if you look at technology hardware costs, they continue to decline. Um, there are new technologies on the horizon like quantum computing, uh, and so, you know, the, the per unit cost of technology, if we see that continues to decline, it, it you know, sort of says that this trend is going to continue for a while. The, the question for labor then would be, Ben, you know, do people want to do these jobs in the future? No, that, that, right? that is absolutely correct. Um, yeah. But let me just follow up on the, on the, on the first part of your uh, sentence. It's true that yeah. this, the trend is, keeps continuing, but it's also, um, you know, happening relatively slowly. I mean, the, the 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 pace at which the labor share is falling in in these many, um, you know, advanced economies is relatively um, small. I don't have the exact numbers here now, but you know, um, it's like uh, a few percentage points every five years or every ten years. So it's it's not uh, like we're uh, you know, rapidly converging towards a zero labor share or anything like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's uh, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to go into another area. You say continuous time methods for macro models with distributions. Uh, how are these different from what we typically right. do? I mean, this sort of comes back to um, what we talked about first, which are these uh, heterogeneous Asian models, in particular these these Hank models. So, so the the main thing is just because exactly of what I described earlier, that in these theories, you uh, have to carry around a whole cross-sectional distribution, uh, essentially have, yeah. you know, a million different people in your model. Um, these models are much harder to solve um, than, um, you know, traditional macroeconomic models where you just keep track of sort of macroeconomic aggregates. And then the... Uh, right thing you need to do or sometimes pays that pays off I guess sometimes is to develop uh, new computational methods or new methods for uh, uh, you know working for, for characterizing and solving these models and that uh, there I've been uh, developing some of these metals, uh, methods now um, continuous time here right uh, refers to um, a mathematical you know way of modeling time as opposed to discrete time. I mean, this, this is getting like yeah. way nerdy, by the way, but I mean, but this, but I mean <laughs> let me discreetly <laughs> tell you, right? The, a discrete time model would be yeah. one where there's a this year and next year and the year after, and those are sort of uh, uh, discrete dates you keep track of. Whereas a continuous time model is one where um, time flows continuously as it does in the, in the real world, right? There's a, you know, 
minutes and seconds and milliseconds and so on. You can always subdivide time. And, you know, as we're progressing, time, time continues. Um, and uh, traditionally in economics, actually kind of interestingly, people have been mostly working with discrete time models, um, where the main reason for doing so is that um, data typically comes observed at discrete time intervals, right? The, you know, national income and product accounts are released every quarter. Um, survey data are usually collected once a year and so on. Um, and uh, what we've been pushing with some co-authors is the idea that actually, if you take seriously the idea that sort of time is uh, continuously, it actually simplifies your life sometimes uh, uh, for, for modeling yeah. things. But this mostly comes back again to these heterogeneous Asian Eucasian models. And I, I think it's more fun uh, to talk about the economics, you know, what this actually implies for uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy. And for example, fiscal policy becomes much more um, uh, powerful in these kind of models uh, than what, you know, we traditionally uh, think in, in these representative Asian models. I think that's more important than focusing on the on the uh, solution methods um, uh, there, especially yeah. for your uh, listeners, I think. Yeah, so realistically, I mean, th this is... Uh kind of modeling the system more realistically. This is actually what right. happens. And uh, presumably we can get a, a better definition of the, of the behavior of the system. Um, it may not have a direct uh, implication for actions or policy, which might, which might just still be discrete. Right. right. Well, I mean, actions and policies can also be... Uh, I mean, taken at least at a sort of approximately continuous level, right? I mean, the, um, you yeah. know, if you think about, uh, you know, interest rates and the monetary authority, so the central bank setting interest rates, I mean, there, what really matters is really high frequencies, right? I mean, and, and you think about right. financial markets and how they react to interest rate changes. I mean, that, that all happens within sort of seconds and milliseconds of, of a, a new monetary yeah. policy being uh, being introduced. So I, I do think um, fundamentally that actually this sort of continuous time way of modeling is, is in many circumstances more realistic. Um, and, and then on top of that, sort of it makes your life easier. So that's uh, in, in terms of... <laughs> yeah, it's mathematically, I would imagine, uh, right. more tractable. Uh, I, I you have three areas detailed here, Ben, on uh, open questions and avenues for future right. research. Uh, I just touch on all three of them. So the first one is heterogeneous agent macro as a gateway to behavior macro, you say. So what's right. what so by that, it comes back to this um, philosophy that we uh, touched upon earlier, which is that, you know, heterogeneous agent macro is all about building things from the ground up. Now, um, there's sort of a parallel literature uh, that's a more of a micro literature rather than a macro literature, uh, which is uh, called behavioral economics, which maybe you've, um, you know, interviewed some other yeah. uh, people on your show already who work in this area, I don't know, um, where essentially the, 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 the key idea is that people behave, um, you know, somewhat differently than your um, sort of uh, optimizing, um, a dynamically optimizing sort of homo economicus with uh, rational <laughs> expectations and so on, which is what we typically put in our macro models. Uh, yeah, like right. Humans. I mean, so I, I don't want to, you know, say something too strong here. I do think the homo economicus <laughs> uh, uh, abstraction is extremely useful in, uh, in, in many circumstances. Yeah.
But there are a number of areas where uh, the microliterature has identified sort of, um, um, you know, people's behavior that doesn't look like, uh, you know, what our standard models would predict. I mean, just to give you an example, um, which is something we've incorporated in our models, uh, uh, what, what you see quite often in, in microdata is some form of procrastination. Okay, so in particular, the, yeah. uh, the, the, the type of procrastination we're interested in is procrastination in the decision to refinance your mortgage. So uh, in the United States and many other countries, right, you have um, fixed rate mortgages. Um, and so uh, quite often then when, you know, interest rates fall, um, you as an individual could, if you go to the bank and refinance your mortgage, you could uh, obtain a lower interest rate. So you could lock in a lower mortgage interest rate. Um, and, uh, and, and you could save yourself a lot of money. But what we see uh, in the data and, and sort of, again, this is uh, not our work, but um, work our micro colleagues have done or our fi finance colleagues have done um, is uh, that households um, or individuals do not, you know, go uh, to the bank as soon as interest rates fall and they could, uh, you know, lock in a lower interest rate. Instead, they wait uh, sometimes quite a long time or sometimes they never refinance, um, meaning they leave a lot of money on the table. Um, just because they're sort of don't get their act together in quotation marks to go to the bank uh, and and uh, sort of uh, uh, refinance. There's other examples like this of of sort of things that look like uh, behavioral frictions. For example, that uh, where 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 we see this a lot is um, retirement savings decisions. Right, the idea that yeah. um, uh, you know it seems to matter quite a bit what the default option is. Quite a lot of people just stick sort of with their um, default retirement plan and never re-optimize it, um, and uh, therefore also potentially leave a fair amount of money on the table, or at least don't have the product that's really tailor-made to them, um, uh, and so on and so forth. And there's lots of uh, uh, things that look a bit like that. And so uh, what we're basically yeah. just saying is, um, sort of in going with the philosophy of uh, heterogeneous agent macro, let's put that sort of behavior into our models and let's think about how it changes, um, you know, predictions for how policy works and so on. Yeah, so uh, setting it up this way, that is uh, taking micro effects into account uh, at the macro level, you can now introduce sort of micro behavioral effects into the model and see what, what happens exactly. at the macro level. Exactly. Yeah, the other area that you have here is asset price changes and wealth inequality. Um, this is a very interesting, um, interesting thing here. So, you know, uh, we see this increasingly uh, in the U.S. that founders of public companies uh, have most of their wealth uh, tied up in stock or options on, on that stock. Uh, and, you know, when you count uh, wealth, you're counting right. all of that. Uh, and uh, you're asking if 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 that is the same as, as exactly well, right? right yeah I mean the the question is exactly like if you uh, if you see like uh, you know Jeff Bezos's wealth um, it's it's all about yeah. what the market capitalization is of Amazon um, or I mean I mean more generally even if if you know just you or I hold some stocks. Um, you may, uh, you know, have large increases in your wealth 
because the stock prices increase. I had, for example, I have some 401k retirement savings um, from my old job in the US. Um, and I, I, I looked at my retirement savings account the other day or like now a month ago. And um, I, my, you know, the value of that retirement saving increased a lot throughout uh, 2020 just because the stock market boomed, right? Mm. Um, and so the question is, um, is that something we uh, should be sort of interested in or concerned about, say, maybe as policymakers, if some people's, you know, measured wealth increases a lot? And then maybe following up on that, is that maybe something we should be taxing or not? Um, you know, should there maybe be a wealth tax? Should we uh, maybe tax uh, such capital gains, right? These asset uh, price increases are essentially just capital gains. Should we should we tax them um, on accrual? Um, so there's some there's some policy proposals, uh, for example, that say that, uh, you know, Biden right now is reforming the capital gains tax system. And there's some people who are saying, yeah. oh, we should actually not just tax capital gains on realizations. So, you know, when you actually sell your stocks, um, we should also tax capital gains on accrual. So when Jeff Bezos uh, uh, gets richer because uh, Amazon stock increases in value, we should tax him on that. And so I just mm. thought that this is sort of an under-researched area that we should be thinking about more um, because it's sort of a not at all an obvious question. And uh, I think essentially the... Yeah. The people uh, in the public finance literature, in particular, the people who are in favor of wealth taxation, um, they sometimes tend to forget that a increase in wealth that's due to the fact that an asset price increases is potentially a little bit different um, than an increase in wealth uh, that happens because you actively save uh, some extra money, say, because your labor income increased, um, and you put that on the side. Um, I don't know. Does that... Kind of makes sense. I can talk more about this. Uh... No, it does. Yeah, I, I mean, the other side of it, Ben, is you know uh, the operating aspects of it, right? So, you know, one of the issues people are concerned about is CEO compensation, senior exec compensation uh, options, the timing of options exercise, uh, and all of that. And you know, if you really critically look at it, it's really difficult to see. Um, the, the the value of a, of a human decision making to be that high, uh, especially we can actually demonstrably show machines actually make decisions a lot better than humans in many cases, and so I think the operating aspects of this is still right. very problematic. Yeah, so that comes back more to the um, question we discussed earlier, right? Maybe why have why has income inequality increased so much? Um, rather than yeah. wealth inequality. So yeah, I, there's a big literature, which I haven't worked on. Um, there's a big literature in economics on executive compensation. Um, and there are sort of, uh, uh, you, you know, what's the right word? There's sort of uh, more optimistic theories of that and more pessimistic one optimistic in the sense that some theories say that essentially this is sort of just a, a return to a high marginal product where the idea is that these managers are actually bringing that much value. Um, and then there's some more um, sort of pessimistic theories or where, where the idea is, is more uh, uh, something more nefarious going on. Basically, uh, essentially, you know, some, some story like all the CEOs sit on each other's compensation boards and raise each other's uh, compensation. 
Um, so, so, so both theories exist. I'm, I'm not really a super expert in this uh, specific theory on executive compensation, yeah. but it's obviously an important question. Yeah, and, and uh, there's one other area. So heterogeneity bubbles and crashes. You say more than 10 years after the Great Recession, yeah. macroeconomists still do not have a sound understanding of the root causes of infrequent but large economic crises. Um, all we know is this is going to happen. Uh, we don't know when, we don't know uh, how much, uh, but uh, it's clear that it's going to repeat. So do we have, after having seen uh, a few of these, uh, do we have a better feel for why these right. things happen? No, I, I, I think in general, um, this is sort of one of the um, big uh, sort of blind spots or open uh, uh, questions in macroeconomics. Uh, you know, why do such financial crises happen and how? what exactly is the mechanism and um i mean there are you, you know the 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 state of these theories is definitely better than what it was before the financial crisis um and what what we what in particular we have pretty good theories of is you know once asset prices crash and people are forced uh to deleverage say in the la in the last uh, financial crisis you know house prices crashed and then uh, a lot of people essentially, um, you know, had had negative equity in their houses, say, um, and 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 uh, yeah. you know, their houses were underwater in that sense. Um, and then we have good theories of uh, you know bad stuff happening, so the, this spilling over to the real economy essentially. Um, but we, what we don't have super good theories of, I think, is sort of why do these sort of asset price bubbles or what looks like bubbles, I guess. Uh, and crashes happen in the first place, and I, uh, or or at least let let me put it maybe slightly differently. There are theories like this, in particular in the sort of finance and macrofinance literature, but what there isn't enough of, I think, is sort of putting these theories then together with the uh, other theories that I just mentioned, which are the theories that say, you know, how does the asset price fall then spill over into the real economy, and then. In particular, sort of disciplining these uh, type of theories with uh, microdata in the way that allows you to make quantitative predictions. And uh, so, essentially, I, I this is sort of probably the most ambitious of the uh, projects or potential research avenues I'm discussing there. I somehow have this idea that somehow, if you uh, could somehow build a heterogeneous agent macro model of the type we just uh, discussed earlier, that somehow can generate these asset price swings uh, that you could, uh, you know, come up with a theory of financial crises that actually sort of uh, can explain these type of crises that we see in the data. Um, but this is sort of something where I don't have a very clear idea of how one would actually do this in practice, uh, which is exactly why I put it under these sort of open, good open questions uh, to work on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so we'll take a, a quick break, Ben. When we come back, um, we'll talk about applications of these ideas, uh, specifically in the COVID-19 shock that we're going through and the policies right. that okay, the great. companies are implementing. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, 
please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, ben, uh, we were talking about um, heterogeneous agent uh, new Keynesian uh, models uh, where the 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 economy as a system has very high variance uh, in, in the participants in that system in terms of income, wealth, uh, financial flexibility, decision flexibility, and so on. Right. And what we expect in terms of behavior, we can really uh, model the system as sort of an average expectation because it doesn't really help from a policy perspective. Now, this is very topical um, as we go through this COVID-19 shock. And a lot of policy questions. Uh, one is uh, sort of the lockdown uh, question, uh, timing and, and uh, the intensity of lockdown uh, and so on. And then there's the question of stimulus, um, how much, how to, how to implement them, who should get them and those questions. So right. do, what, um, I know that you have a very detailed model around this. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about how you constructed the model? Sure. I, yeah, I'd be very, very happy to. Um, so yeah, this is a, a, a joint work with uh, my long-term co-authors, Greg Kaplan and Gianluca Violante, who are also my co-authors on this whole um, heterogeneous agent, uh, new Keynesian, so Hank agenda. Um, so the, the key idea, so we started working on this sort of essentially in the early days of the pandemic. Um, and we sort of thought that um, there's sort of three issues that are key uh, for thinking through the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, in particular, two issues that also already lots of other economists had sort of emphasized which is sort of obviously the epidemiological aspect, um, yeah. what drives infections, and second, sort of the macroeconomic aspect. So how does that in interact with, you know, aggregate consumption and investment and so on? But what we thought, what, what's sort of really important to bring in as well is sort of the distributional effects. And in mm -hmm. particular, uh, we thought that's important because the way this pandemic, you know, seems to play out is that some people... Uh, are hit much, much harder than others. So some people are basically completely unaffected. Like, you know, you and I, we can uh, keep doing our jobs more or less the same yeah. way we used to do it. I mean, we're just talking here right now on the internet. I spend, uh, you know, a lot of time on Zoom. So I just do my teaching via Zoom now rather than going to the classroom, which is a little bit worse, but, you know, doesn't make that much of a difference. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there's other, uh, you know, professions in particular uh, uh, that, that are much harder hit. So take uh, uh, a waiter for... Um, um, so obviously when there's lockdowns and the restaurants are closed and the uh, waiter, you know, can't do his job. But even without the lockdowns, um, the, I guess, and we saw this in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, people would essentially stop going to restaurants. Um, and so even because of that, sort of labor demand for waiters would have fallen. And so the, the, these sort of socially facing occupations uh, would be uh, hit much harder. And so essentially the idea was that we want to incorporate this uh, in our model and uh, um, that there's these uh, uh, very differently hit people uh, in, in the population. And so, uh, and so if you take that sort of diverse population 
Um, does it have implications for, do we have any better predictions? I know there are models like the SIR model in terms of spread and so on. Does it have some implications for how we predict spread? Right. Um, yes, a little bit, but not so much. So, so yeah, I mean, let me maybe as a, as a background describe a little bit the type of model we work with. So yeah. essentially um, we glue together um, two models. Um, one is um, exactly one of these heterogeneous agent macro models, which is sort of bringing together the macro aspects and the distributional aspects. And then we essentially glue that together or combine this with one of these SIR models from epidemiology. So one of these uh, susceptible infectious recovered um, uh, models or what's called a compartmental model in epidemiology. Yeah. Um, and uh, essentially uh, the, the, the key idea is sort of to think about sort of the interaction between these two uh, model elements. Um, and what you see is that indeed sort of the, on the one hand, sort of the economic side affects the epidemiological transmission. And on the other hand, the epidemiological transmission affects the economics. So uh, in particular, what you see is that, you know, if uh, infections are raging, um, uh, then essentially people will cut back on uh, what we call social consumption or what the literature now calls social consumption which is exactly uh, going to restaurants, uh, traveling, and so on. Um, and that has an effect on the economy, uh, even in the absence of any lockdown measures. Um, so, or sometimes people call this voluntary social distancing as well. Um, so people sort of, you know, uh, being careful, there's sort of a fear factor uh, where, you know, if there's lots of people infected or lots of people dying around you, you don't go to restaurants as much anymore. So that's the you know one direction of the feedback, and the other direction of the feedback is that uh, then that type of behavior, so people being more careful, um, then also feeds into the epidemiological transmission. So if people don't go to restaurants as much anymore, then also the transmissions decrease, um, and then those those two kind of uh, effects will sort of balance. Um, and so so that's something we have in our our model. Um, and but to be fair, that's also something that a lot of the uh, existing uh, sort of macro or epi macro sometimes people now call this so epidemiological macroeconomics literature has um, so that would be something even there that would be there even without the heterogeneity and the distribution it gets amplified a little bit with the heterogeneity and the distribution but uh, uh, not all that much does that kind yeah. of make sense there are there are two issues, right? Then uh, one is if you if you take the system, there are certain initial conditions that we have already talked about: mm -hmm. um, wealth and income disparity. And because of those diverse initial conditions, your expectations of behaviors of the agents are going to be highly varied. Right. And shock happens, and the shock disproportionately uh, affect those agents, right? And so, so now, you know, the, the behaviors that we expect from those agents are, are going to be, I would imagine, quite different, um, even, from the, even from the original sort of steady state model. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So there's one, one, one key thing we see in the data, which is that sort of uh, people who are most uh, financially exposed to the pandemic in the sense that they take the largest hits uh, uh, to their labor incomes, um, are also the most financially vulnerable, uh, typically in the sense that they have uh, 
the lowest amount of sort of uh, uh, liquid savings that they can use as buffers to sort of smooth out these shocks. So that's something we see in the in the data very strongly. So these kind of occupations that I talked about earlier, like waiters and hairdressers, so these sort of socially facing occupations, uh, the, in the data they have much much lower liquid wealth uh, than uh, occupations that uh, you know can work from home very well. Um, and so uh, uh, so do you have this sort of unfortunate correlation there between exposure and vulnerability, vulnerability uh, yeah. which really sort of amplifies. Uh, these the distributional effects of this of this shock. Um, you, you talk about uh, a distributional pandemic possibility frontier (PPF). Right. Um, there, there is a trade-off between uh, sort of um, severe infections, uh, deaths, and and so on against uh, economic uh, growth. Right. So. Um, so, so can we use these models to sort of look at what the optimum policy might be from a lockdown perspective? No, that's a, that's exactly right. So, yeah. Um, so, so one of the main uses of this model is exactly um, we want to think about policy, and there's two, uh, you know, sides of the policy. One is the sort of public health policy, and one is the macroeconomic policy. And on the public health policy, I guess the primary tool. Uh, that's been used in, in most uh, developed countries is sort of lockdown policies. And on the macroeconomic policy uh, side, the primary tool that's been used by most uh, developed countries is uh, some sort of a fiscal support or uh, a fiscal stimulus or social insurance, whatever you want to call it, uh, policy. So in the U.S., that would, would have been the uh, the CARES Act in particular. Um, so, and so what we uh, do to think about the, the, the these two types of policy we came up with this construct that we sort of termed this pandemic possibility frontier or this distributional pandemic possibility frontier, which allows us to sort of trace out uh, potential trade-offs between sort of health and wealth, if you want, or lives and livelihoods. Um, yeah. And in particular, and that's the important part, um, take into account distributional effects while doing so, right? Um, so there are other papers as well, which sort of, Think, think about the trade-offs between uh, health and wealth or lives and livelihoods, but they, uh, you know, don't take into account that the economic consequences are very unequally distributed because of all the things that, that we discussed before. And so essentially this pandemic, this distributional pandemic possibility frontier is essentially just a diagram um, which has um, for different policies um, it sort of always returns, you know, a, bundle, a bunch of numbers. So in particular, it, it uh, returns on the on the x-axis in the in the way we plotted um, the total number of lives lost to uh, COVID-19, and on the y-axis, uh, so that's sort of the health outcomes, I guess, uh, uh, or the the lives. And on the y-axis, it returns the sort of um, um, the economic outcomes, so the uh, the 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 wealth or the livelihoods, I guess. Uh, and in particular, what it takes into account there is not just the average effect of different policies, but also the distribution. And the, so, just to give you an example, um, if you, if you, you, so, so you, so once we have this model up and running, right, we can exactly do what you said, is we can run sort of policy counterfactuals. We can say what would have happened in the United States if there hadn't been any lockdown whatsoever. Or we can say what would have happened in the United States 
if there had been a much longer lockdown or so now in the second wave of infections, there would have been another national lockdown of the type we saw in uh, in, in the spring. Um, and so then the idea is that sort of varying uh, these policies and, and sort of, you know, doing these, using the model as sort of a, a laboratory for doing these different counterfactuals that traces out the sort of pandemic possibility frontier. Now, what you see, for example, is that if you uh, wouldn't have done any lockdown, um, you know, obviously uh, lots more people would have died um, because the uh, pandemic would have swept um, the, the country in a much more aggressive fashion. So this is about the United States in this case, by the way. Um, yeah. And, and what you also see is that then uh, probably uh, there would have been less economic costs um, that, uh, than what we saw uh, with uh, the lockdown policies that were implemented. Um, however, what's kind of important is the economic costs are uh, still relatively large, even with uh, a no intervention, so no public health intervention policy, no lockdown scenario. Uh, in particular, so it's not the case, for example, some people sometimes naively say that, um, you know, if there had not been any lockdown policies, um, uh, it would have all been smooth sailing for the economy, <laughs> okay? Yeah. What we find very strongly is that that's not the case. That's a very naive position. In particular, even without lockdown measures, the economy would have taken a huge hit. Why? Because of this voluntary social distancing or the sort of a fear factor. So people, um, because there's a raging epidemic, stop going to restaurants, stop uh, traveling and so on. And that then uh, has uh, uh, negative effects on the economy. And in particular, uh, these very strong distributional effects where you uh, hit some occupations much more than others. Um, on the other hand, if you did a really long lockdown, um, then you can save a lot of lives. But uh, uh, you know, you, you at some point the economic costs skyrocket on you, and in particular, um, uh, you know the uh, the distributional effects become a real problem because some people who already kind of don't have any savings, um, you're kind of dri you're, you're driving them out of work, and then it get, gets really bad for them, and they essentially. Uh, you know, can't uh, put food on the table anymore. Yeah, I would imagine, Ben, in these types of models, you know, it's difficult to derive optimum policy um, because even from a utilitarian perspective, if you don't have the, the value of life, um, you, you can't really do much about that, right? So, so, so I guess what we could do is to ask these questions uh, or, or run the scenario, so to speak, uh, and then if you have robust answers to it in terms of duration of the pandemic versus, um, you know, uh, quick and fat, quick and severe lockdown and so on. Uh, so, so we could run some scenarios and look at what that implies for the system, right? And then let the, let the public determine um, what the right policy is. No, exa that's exactly right. I mean, the whole um, sort of philosophy of this pandemic possibility frontier is that um, yeah, we don't want to, you know, get into these philosophical or ethical debates on what sort of the the, the value of life. Um, or some economists, you know, they they uh, have this. I, I I saw that you had Pete Clino on the show, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, they have a paper, for example, where they, um, you know, uh, uh, try to come up with estimates of what of so, what sort of the uh, value of a statistical life it's called. So what's the dollar value of a, 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 a of a of a life that you save? Um, and, uh, and 
it's not like we have a problem with that, but we say maybe you know uh, you you don't want to take that strong a stand, and in, in, instead there's other factors that uh, may you know make you decide on whether a policy is desirable or not, um, which which you know you can't necessarily capture with this. And so we say we're just going to give you the policymaker or the public. We're just going to give you sort of a menu of options um, yeah. in terms of these outcomes, in terms of lives and livelihoods. That then you, uh, uh, as the policymaker uh, or the public, can choose from depending on what you think is the right way of making this trade-off. Um, I mean, just to be clear, I, I do think exactly because of what I said before, which is that even without um, the uh, a lockdown policy, the economy suffers um, quite heavy losses. For any reasonable values of uh, statistical lives, like what, uh, say, Pete Plino would say is a, a reasonable number, you would want to intervene quite heavily in terms of lockdowns. Um, and uh, we're sort of reconfirming, I think, here uh, a finding that, um, you know, the, the the economics literature has found that, I, I mean, you do definitely want to uh, intervene uh, a little bit uh, or, or quite a bit if you if you if you value. Uh, saving lives, um, but we're, but our point is sort of more general, and exactly we want to maybe have more general um, uh, policies essentially. Yeah, I mean the good thing, Ben, I think you know we have sort of different experiments run uh, New Zealand, South Korea, Sweden uh, are examples of it. Now exposed, we can actually look at the outcomes there, right? Uh, could we actually derive some conclusions? Right, and. Um, so it's it's I mean it's hard to uh, uh, you know generalize um, in particular because the um, pandemic is still ongoing and uh, you know who knows what's 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 going to happen uh, going forward again this is my sort of natural caution as an economist to wanna, uh, you know uh, to not to, uh, uh, to be nervous about forecasting um, but yes I mean. For sure, I mean it, it. It does seem to me the case that um, uh, essentially the the countries that um, have sort of tackled the virus uh, aggressively early on, and essentially uh, done sort of the New Zealand uh, or or uh, Australia and so on uh, type policy, where they sort of closed off their borders and sort of just uh, drove infections to zero. Um, or what's sometimes called a zero COVID policy, have done yeah. uh, uh, quite a bit better in terms of both lives and livelihoods. Now there's a question, I guess, um, whether you can do this in practice. You know, can you actually, if you're the United States or the United Kingdom, completely seal off your borders and then uh, drive off infections down to zero? Obviously, for New Zealand, it's uh, relatively easier because it's sort of an island uh, state. But I mean, some people have argued that, for example, a country like the United Kingdom um, should have should have done this. And I, I do think the prediction, I mean, this is, I should say, not something that we actually look at in our model for some technical reasons, um, yeah. this sort of zero COVID uh, type strategy. Um, but I, I'm, I do think uh, I'd be pretty sure that if, if we were to look at that in our model and you can actually achieve that, um, that would give you uh, uh, superior outcomes. Essentially, sort of through in the in our in our sort of frontier language, um, it would sort of shift the distributional pandemic possibility frontier 
towards more desirable outcomes where you have both uh, less deaths and uh, uh, lower welfare costs or lower uh, costs in terms of livelihoods. Um, so therefore you sort of alleviate this trade-off uh, or even completely eliminate the trade-off between life and livelihoods potentially. But, but do you see this um, uh, just sort of a physical constraint? Uh, Australia, New Zealand have natural advantages, like you said, uh, being an island. Uh, South Korea is not. Uh, and, and seems like South Korea has done pretty well yes. as well. So could, could we, uh, does this give us sort of enough data to say in the next round, a zero COVID policy might be dominant. Uh, like you say, you know, it, it's it's difficult to say because we didn't run this experiment in the U.S. Uh, but do you see there are reasons that would tell us that it is not possible if you are not an island? Right. Um, no, I, I I agree with you that probably um, that for at least if you're, I mean, again for the U.S. it's a bit more difficult because it's such a big country. But um, for yeah. a smaller country like the UK, I mean, I don't necessarily see why they couldn't have done uh, what, say, South Korea did. Um, I think there's, I mean, this, but this is now getting, uh, uh, this is me just being an informed uh, reader of the public trade rather than yeah. this being based on my model, right? Um, my Im impression is that uh, a number of things work better in, uh, South Korea than in other countries like the US and UK. Um, first, they did close their borders relatively early and then have these sort of uh, quarantine hotels. Um, second, um, uh, there's a better contact tracing system. Um, and third, and that's sort of related, there's just much more enforcement um, of the rules uh, than uh, what we've done in other countries. So I, I mean, I can just see what's happening here in the UK um, there's very little enforcement of any of the rules. I mean, um, I was in a shopping center in uh, 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 in early December, just after the second national lockdown was lifted. And uh, uh, so Westfield shopping mall for people who know London, maybe. And there was lots of people just, I mean, it was jam-packed. People were running around without masks. Um, and I mean, it just kind of looked like uh, uh, the, 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 it was sort of inevitable that this was going to lead to a bad uh, outcome. And and then lo and behold, what you saw is that infections skyrocketed uh, a, a few weeks later in combination. And obviously there was a new variant um, of the virus. But uh, I think even without that combination, uh, you know, uh, infections would have uh, uh, grown a lot. And I think that's sort of what models uh, predict, essentially, if you uh, uh, lift the lockdown and you don't enforce any of the rules. Um, you're gonna have rising infections, and uh, and I think um, you know if 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 countries like the U.S. and U.K. could learn from countries like uh, uh, South Korea, these uh, East Asian countries, and uh, and New Zealand, Australia, and just adopt some of these policies, and I don't see any specific reasons why we couldn't uh, achieve uh, uh, at least much better outcomes than what the ones we've seen here. Yeah, and you touched on this. So the other part of this is sort of the fiscal uh, and potentially monetary stimulus uh, to, to bring the economy back. You, you, you touched on CARES Act in the U.S. Right. Uh, what, what do we find from the model, uh, sort of the effectiveness of the, the, of the CARES Act? I and mean, there, there are two questions there. One is obviously the design of it. 
and the other is the implementation of it. The implementation of it is, I think, uh, is a little bit uh, varied um, in its effectiveness. But at least from a design perspective, what yeah. do you see? No, so we exactly. So in addition, in addition to thinking about these uh, different uh, lockdown policies, we also think about fiscal policy. And what we see is that um, the CARES Act uh, in the United States was very effective at alleviating economic hardship. So in, in terms of this uh, distributional pandemic possibility frontier, it essentially shifts uh, uh, inwards sort of uh, towards better outcomes, this frontier. So it essentially just um, gives you lower uh, uh, costs to livelihoods um, without really affecting death. So that's uh, kind of a, a, a good thing to do. And through the lens of our model, what we say is that sort of economic welfare costs were reduced by uh, 20 percentage points um, relative to the No Cares Act uh, counterfactual uh, that we can examine using our model. I think in general, um, what you see uh, uh, in, in, in uh, macro models is that um, it's pretty hard um, uh, to sort of, or fiscal support and sort of social insurance policies are kind of uh, just a very good idea in these kind of models. And it's pretty hard sort of to overdo this. Um, and the reason is yeah. just simply that um, is again, it comes back to this exposure, this correlation, sorry, between exposure and vulnerability, which is that some people um, literally just wouldn't be able to put food on the table without these uh, support packages. So, uh, you know, people are um, uh, have very little liquid wealth their labor income gets wiped out. They uh, can survive for uh, maybe a month or two uh, without uh, fiscal support or with any help from the government. But then uh, at some point they, they just run out of money. Um, and so then if the government can borrow at cheap rates like it can uh, in the United States now, um, you know, uh, uh, and it can sort of use that borrowed money to uh, give transfers to the people who are uh, literally on the verge of uh, starving, I guess uh, that that's going to be a good thing. Now, um, two two comments on this. Um, first of all, you don't need to uh, believe in any sort of heterodox economic theories like modern monetary theory or anything like that to uh, you know believe that this comes out of a completely standard macroeconomic model. The only thing you need is uh, that what's called Ricardian equivalence fails. Um, uh, because people yeah. are uh, financially constrained, essentially. Um, and uh, um, other thing uh, is that um, I do think that, so this is true that, that um, you know, this, this CARES Act was very beneficial, even though uh, there would have probably been a lot of room for improvement for doing it better. So in particular, yeah. um, one thing I do think there was a fair amount of waste in the way it was done. So in particular, these transfers were quite untargeted. Uh, a lot of money was right. given to sort of uh, 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 big corporations uh, as transfers. So in particular, a large uh, chunk of the CARES Act, right, was the um, the the PPP, the so-called uh, Paycheck Protection Program. I think a lot of it, or yeah. lots of economists think a lot of this was essentially just a transfer um, uh, uh, to, to firms rather than to workers. Um, and, uh, yeah. uh, and also, you know, just the policy of sending every household 
a check of uh, what was it? I guess twelve hundred dollars. Uh, I think um, it seems a little bit um, sort of untargeted. It seems like one could have done better by uh, you know not giving uh, you know you and I or people like you and I money, but like just giving the money to the people who really need it. But even though that's the case and it's sort of not entirely efficient, um, our model does predict that it yeah. was uh, uh, massively beneficial in terms of alleviating economic hardship. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an important thing for us to think about. Um, I don't know the details of it, but uh, a large a private university on the East Coast was uh, first in line. Um, you know, they're, they're sitting on tens of billions of foundation money, but they were first in line for the PPP right. program. Okay. Of more than hundred dollars, and uh, yeah, and so yeah, like you say, the implementation of it is—I um, don't know if it was corrupt, or it was just uh, designed incorrectly or not targeted. And we are about to embark on this again, um, and and a lot of debates around the quantity of the stimulus. Uh, that's where most of the debate is, but very little on the on the quality of the design. Um, of the right. you know of the stimulus and and I think what you're saying is that the design is at least as important. No, that's as right. Quantity. I mean, in the uh, defense of um, policymakers, um, I do think, especially in the first lockdown, um, there's one factor that was of the essence, namely speed. They just needed to get this yeah. money out very quickly. Um, and then they essentially just uh, used an existing mechanism, which is these uh, tax rebate checks, right? So, uh, 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 right? You know, because you have all the addresses um, of people already uh, and you have a system for mailing them checks. So they just use the IRS tax rebate uh, check system. Um, that led, I mean, that, let me just tell you a little anecdote, maybe uh, kind of interesting. Yeah. So my, um, my wife um, uh, lives in Paris. Um, and she, but she used to work in the United States. Um, so, for example, she got a a, 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 um, a CARES Act tax rebate check in the mail in Paris, signed yeah. by Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, I mean, she she hasn't uh, you know uh, cashed it yet. Um, she maybe uh, donated to charity or something. Um, but, I mean, that seems kind of absurd yeah. that they would send uh, money to someone who lives abroad. Uh, 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 and doesn't even need the money, um, and that seems a little bit wasteful. Um, at the same time, you know, maybe that's a necessary cost you have to pay for uh, getting this uh, uh, out, this money out quickly. Um, but I do think that now in the current round um, of, of, it looks like they're uh, doing another uh, stimulus package, right? Um, in the current in the current round, yeah. it does seem like they could have uh, probably come up with something a little bit more targeted. And there was definitely enough time uh, to do that, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is uh, is a very interesting uh, area, Ben. So, in conclusion, um, if you look forward, if you take these types of models that seems to introduce a higher level of realism into how complex systems behave. Uh, do you think these could assist, um, you know, policies uh, in a much better way in the future? What do you see in the next five years uh, with, with these types of models? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's uh, 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 that's right. Um, the the goal here is to 
sort of uh, make the policy making uh, better or more realistic. And um, we, we do already see that um, a number of central banks have uh, begun developing their own sort of heterogeneous agent models. Um, and you do see these models referenced uh, 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 more frequently. There was recently a, um, a uh, review of the mandate of the, um, of the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, and uh, if you look a little bit at the, at the footnotes there, um, uh, or if you look at the statements in a bit more detail, now there's um, sort of distributional objectives are, um, uh, you know, um, explicitly mentioned in the in the uh, sort of mission statement of the Fed essentially, and uh, and then if you look at the footnote, it sort of says, oh, you know, we've we've uh, used the heterogeneous agent model uh, to think about how monetary policy affects distribution, and uh, uh, we think that you know. Uh, the, our new uh, uh, policy uh, toolbox um, sort of works well for the distributional outcomes. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's that um, this will happen more and more. It's sort of, I think one other thing that's nice about these heterogeneous Asian models, it just makes it easier for both policymakers and the public to connect with these models or think in terms of these models, just because you sort of, yeah. It's you can think about uh, people that live in these models that are kind of like yourself um, or like people you've met or seen, um, whereas then this abstraction of a representative agent that, uh, you know, typically uh, or the, the, the older models uh, uh, are about is like harder to connect to. So just for sort of storytelling and thinking through mechanisms in combination with microdata, um, that's uh, where I, I yeah. sort of see the usefulness of these models. Yeah, I'd like you mentioned, you know, sort of playing scenarios with it. Uh, even if you cannot reach an optimum policy, you can at the very least see what the effects, real effects could be of exactly. a policy choice. And uh, that should that should help us all. Yeah, excellent. Uh, excellent, Ben. Thanks so much for spending time all with right, me. Thank you. Uh, it was a fun conversation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.